a few people like to dabble in it. We had a photographer taking some pictures today, uh, just capturing this moment. Uh, some of you are so good at photography, and some of us are not so good. And you ever seen someone, they're just, they just take the picture, and they just like, they capture the moment. It's like the aesthetic, and the, just like the, the, uh, the way they, the, the, you know, just the way people are posed. And you're just like, like, that looks so good. And then I like take pictures of it. I'm like, this does not look the same. You know what I'm talking about, right? But, but how many, you just, it doesn't matter how good you are, your, your phone is full of photos. Anyone, you have like photos on your phone? You know, some of you, you have photo albums, you have like shelves full of photos. But a lot of us now, we have photos all on our phone, capturing a moment in time. You know, a really good photo, you look back on it, you can just remember that moment, can't you? It's like you can remember the energy and the feeling and the, the joy of that moment. And, and you look back on it and you're just like, oh, I just really reliving that again. You know, I see some of you uh, on, on celebration weekends like this, uh, we, we always have a photo booth out in our lobby, and I see you posting your photos. I go home for lunch, and I'm looking at your photos on Facebook and Instagram, and your family looks so nice, uh, and it's great that you remember to take a photo. My family's the worst at getting family photos. We hardly have any photos with all of us in it. Today, today we were like, we need to get a photo today. And so I don't want the moment to pass by. If you have your phone with you, would you just take it out right now, because I just want to capture this moment, and uh, we're going to take a Sunday morning selfie, okay? So get the people around you, get your phone, uh, we, we don't want to go home today and be like, oh, I should have got a photo, so get your photo, if you don't have a, a, a camera, that's okay, I'll get you, I'll get you in my photo there, okay, there we go, over this way. There we go, nice, there we go. If you take a photo, you can hashtag it Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday selfie, and tag us in it. I don't want you to forget this moment. This is an important moment, isn't it, to look back on and to remember what God is doing at this moment in time. You know, it's great to capture these moments we look back on with fondness, appreciation. My wife was scrolling through my phone and she was looking at photos this week that she didn't know that I had taken years ago. She's like, I didn't know you had photos uh, of this moment. And uh, we were just sitting there reminiscing and remembering some of the great times and the laughter and joy and, uh, you know, the, the, the Sunday, uh, Sunday night dance party. That's what the, the photos were. She used to go and she would do alpha Sunday nights and, and I would help the kids make their lunches and we were having a dance party. She, I didn't know you had these photos. And we're just, you know, looking at our family and just thinking how much it's grown. So many great moments on my camera roll. Same as probably as you. But you know what's not on my camera roll? All the forgettable moments. You know, all the moments that were like, eh, not worth taking a picture of this moment. Or there's some moments where you're like, I definitely do not want to capture this moment in time. Anyone? Uh, someone saw me yesterday and they were like, I saw you and you were down at the grocery store. And I was like, I hope I wasn't arguing with my kids. Or, you know, like, well, was I, what was I doing in that moment, right? I hope there's moments, right, that we don't want to remember. There's like photo-worthy moments, and then there's the moments that we would like to forget. Anyone ever had some forgettable moments? You know, some moments you're like, I'm glad no one saw that. I'm glad that wasn't captured for all of time. See, on my camera roll I have, you would see celebrations, and you would see accomplishments, you would see happiness. And if you looked at my, my camera roll, it would look like I'm just living one big happy life, right? But how many know that there are lots of moments that we would like to forget? Right? We see the happiness, but there's the moments of loneliness or sadness. We, we see the accomplishments, but there's also moments of failure. 
You know, the picture we, we take, they don't always capture the full reality of the moment. Sometimes we want to crop out and edit and even delete the moments that we don't want to remember. Well, there was a, a news journalist, and she was at the Boston Red Sox game, and it was a beautiful, uh, sunny afternoon, and so she decided to take a selfie uh, to capture the moment. And so uh, here's a picture. Uh, this is uh, reporter Kelly Nash at the Boston Red Sox game. Doesn't that look just like a beautiful moment being there? Who would like to be at a baseball game today, you know, in the sunshine? Capture this moment. This moment was such a beautiful moment. And for the moment that she took the picture, it was. But if we were to uncrop this photo, you're going to see what she actually captured on her selfie. This is during batting practice. (laughs) And what she didn't know as she took that camera was that in just a few seconds, her day was going to go from perfect to a lot worse. And uh, she got hit by a baseball at the baseball game. How you know, sometimes we crop the moment, right? We look back on those photos and we're like, that was such a great time, but surrounding it, if you've ever had kids doing the family portrait, you look at them all smiling and they look so nice, but it was a fight to get them there, right? How many know there were tears and crying, all kinds of things to get them to that moment? For all the highlights and photo-worthy moments, we all have moments we like to crop or delete from our memory. You know Where have you experienced failure in your life? Maybe you failed at a personal accomplishment. Maybe you had a goal. Maybe there's a team that you didn't make that you were trying out for. Or maybe there's a prize that you were trying to earn. Uh, Some of you might have had a business that that failed and, and you had to deal with what that was like. Some of us have had failed relationships or marriages. Sometimes we betray our conscience or our beliefs and we call that a moral failure. And we all deal with uh, failure in some way, shape, or form. We have these regrettable moments that we wish we could crop out or edit or delete from our lives. But I want to ask the question today, how do you respond to failure? Winston Churchill, he said, success is not final and failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Now, while Winston Churchill famously said this quote, this is a a principle that has been declared long before Winston ever said it. This is something that we see in the pages of Scripture today as we continue our series called Follow Me. And now, if you're just joining us on Easter Sunday, in person or online, we're so glad to have you joining us today. And we're in the middle of this series based on these two words spoken by Jesus. Now, we see them recounted 13 times in Scripture and often is given as an invitation by Jesus to the people around him. This words, follow me. And so this is the invitation that Jesus extends to you and to me today as well. Follow me. And so each week we've been digging deeper into some of the stories surrounding this invitation that Jesus gives. And and we were looking at how can we respond like the people in the story of Scripture What we've been uh, confronted by is that every invitation of Jesus comes with a confrontation within ourselves about how we will, uh, whether we will uh, accept his invitation and take him up on it or not. 
And so here's the thing about saying yes to Jesus. We've been talking about this idea that we don't know when we say yes to Jesus where the road will lead or how the journey, uh, what the journey will bring. But what we've discovered and what we hope that you will discover is that there is no greater calling than to follow Jesus. That there's no greater purpose, there's no better life than to follow Jesus. John 8, 12, Jesus says this. He says, follow me and you will have the light that leads to life. So this is the invitation Jesus gives. He gives it to the, to the rich and the poor. He gives it to the young and to the old. He gives it to the religious and the non-religious. Uh, he gives it to people with good reputations and bad reputations, the invitation to follow me. But what we've also been looking at is that Jesus isn't inviting people to follow a religion. He's not inviting them to follow a certain set of rituals and religious activities. He's not even inviting them to follow a set of rules. Jesus isn't saying follow the rules. He's saying follow me. And what he's really saying is I want to be in relationship with you. Every invitation comes with this confrontation, whether we'll take him up on it or not. And so we kind of saw Kelly's funny, you know, before and after photo moment. Uh, I want to look at some before and after moments surrounding what we're here to celebrate today, the resurrection. If you want to turn with me to Matthew 26, we're going to be landing there and we're going to have uh, quite a bit of scripture to go through today. But the scene opens with the Last Supper. I know you've all seen the painting of Jesus around the table with his uh, disciples. I don't know how they captured that moment, uh, but they did. They got the painting. Must have been exactly like that, Pastor Ralph, I think. I don't know. Everyone's sitting on one side of the table. Uh, you ever go to the restaurant and you see couples on one side of the table? Right? Sometimes they do that. I don't know. We're, we're like an across-the-table couple. We like to see each other. Sometimes people like to be on the same side. So the disciples, they just loved each other. They were all on one side of the table with Jesus in the middle, just like the painting. And uh, it's the Last Supper. They're celebrating the Feast of Passover. I'm sure that as Jesus was sitting at the table with his 12 disciples, he must have been reminiscing a little bit. Reminiscing about the three years that they'd spent together. Reminiscing even a little bit about maybe the circumstances surrounding uh, how they met and how he'd called them and how they uh, received his invitation. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that was an interesting story. See, when Jesus met them, they were literally on the beach minding their own business. They were literally on the beach mending their nets after a, a fruitless night of fishing. And it says that Jesus came along the beach and he was teaching and preaching the crowds about the kingdom of God. And the crowds were pressing him so much uh, that he was kind of getting a little claustrophobic. And so he comes to Peter's boat and he said, hey, Peter, uh, would you mind if I got in your boat? Would you just like push me out offshore a little bit? Give me a little distance from this crowd that's pressing in. And so Peter, you know, says, sure, he, he gets. Jesus in his boat pushes off the shore just a little bit and Jesus stands there teaching and preaching to the crowds about the kingdom of God and, and as he wraps up he turns to Peter and he says why don't you take us out a little bit deeper let's go fishing together well Peter he's been out all night he's exhausted he, he's like Jesus we've been doing this all night didn't catch a thing you know we had the fish finder going didn't see a thing all night and Jesus says I know what you should do why don't you put the nets on the other side of the boat right and Peter's like, seriously, Lord, like, you know, we have a professional fisherman. We kind of know how this works. You know, it's not like there's a school of fish, you know, eight feet over that we're missing. You know, but Jesus is just like, just do it. And they do it. 
And you know the story how miraculously their nets are filled with fish, so much so that the boat begins to sink. How many know that's a fun situation to be in? So they call out uh, for James and John to come and help them. Uh, and, and so it's in this moment that Jesus extended the invitation to these four disciples, and he said, come, follow me. Come, follow me. You know, each of the disciples around the table, they had responded to some form of this invitation, some form of this calling by Jesus. But that doesn't mean their lives were perfect or that their lives were exempt from failure, as we're about to find out. Matthew 26, verse 20 says, When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. You know, imagine, it's just like Easter family dinner. Maybe you had yours yesterday, or you're going to have it today or Monday. But they're all sitting around the table, and they're all excited to be together. They're all excited to see what's for dinner. And, you know, they're just starting to get into the ham and the lamb and whatever they're doing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus drops his bomb on them. And they're like, well, way to ruin the vibe, Jesus, right? Like, we were having a good time. What do you mean? One of us is going to betray you. Verse 22 says, greatly distressed. Each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you has just eaten from this bowl with me, will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who betrayed, uh, who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? Jesus told him, you have said it. So this story, it appears in all the Gospels. Uh, it appears with each Gospel writer giving their own unique uh, point of view of the story. And, and John recounts in his Gospel that Judas got up to leave the table. And, and he recounts that it's like the rest of the crew didn't really know what was going on. And, and because he was the treasurer, he was the money guy for the group, they actually thought he was getting up to pay the bill and, and to take care of, of the food uh, costs. But Matthew, he's writing in hindsight. He's writing in hindsight to what's happening. He's already told us in verse 14 what's been going on in Judas's private life. He says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the, the leading high priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. How much will you betray me, he asks. 30 pieces of silver was the amount prophesied centuries ago in Zechariah. We see uh, Zechariah eleven twelve 12, that uh, this was the price uh, of betrayal for the Messiah. We saw that this had been prophesied long ago. Uh, not a small amount, but it wasn't a large amount either, about two to three months wages at this time. And interestingly enough, this was the amount set up in the Old Testament centuries before as the price to be paid, or the minimum price to be paid by the guilty party in the event of the accidental death of another person's slave. We see that in uh, Exodus 21. And so we have Jesus, the Son of God, betrayed for the price of what society then considered the value of the lowest uh, valued human life. What was Judas's motivation? We can't really be sure. It doesn't tell us in the text, but it couldn't have been for the money. You know, many scholars speculate that he had lost faith in Jesus, that this wasn't the Messiah that he had hoped for. 
We know throughout the New Testament, we see this continuously as a theme that, that the, Jesus wasn't the political or military leader people expected. So maybe Judas is looking at Jesus and he's a little angry and bitter at having been duped by Jesus. I've given three years of my life to follow you and you're not willing to stand up and fight and you're not willing to do what it is that I thought that you were going to do. And so it's better to cash in and get out of this group, you know, and things are starting to get a little bit of pressure on Jesus and his followers. And so he thought maybe I should just check out right now. Possibly that's what it was. Uh, maybe it wasn't just the, the Messiah he was hoping for. Maybe it, was, it wasn't the timing he was hoping for. You know, growing impatient with Jesus' refusal to take his right place as the Messiah. It's possible that J Judas thought he could speed up Jesus' timing by taking matters into his own hands. Now there's debate, you know, uh, in the theologians debate whether or not that Judas actually believed that Jesus could be arrested. You know, he'd been with Jesus. He'd seen the miraculous power of God uh, work in his life. And having seen the supernatural power, it's possible that Judas believed that Jesus would have commanded the angels to come and to defend him. And, and so maybe he thought Jesus was the rightful ruler of Israel and he just needed a little bit of nudging to take action. How many ever feel like sometimes you just wish you could just nudge God a little bit to take action a little sooner than it seems like he is? We don't know the motivation for certain, but I kind of lean this way a little bit. Given his response following Jesus' arrest in verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 3, it says, Judas, when he had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, and he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do, they, what do we care, he, they, report, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. How many know that we've all said and done things in our lives that we wish we could crop out, the things that we wish we could like delete from the camera roll or, or edit and undo? You know, there's failures that, that come in our lives, and some of them bear more shame and guilt than others. You know, some of them make us question whether or not we could ever find forgiveness for what we've said and done. Sometimes we question whether or not we could ever find it in us to forgive ourselves. I want to encourage you today that failure is an event. Failure is an event. Failure is never a person. What I'm saying though is that while you may have failed, you will never be a failure. You'll never be a failure. I want to encourage you this Easter Sunday that just because you failed, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have healing, wholeness, and restoration for you. I want to tell you today that suicidal thoughts cloud your perspective. Suicidal thoughts tell you that there's nothing good in life or nothing good in yourself, nothing worth living for. Suicide is always a permanent solution to a temporary situation. Do I believe that Judas could have found forgiveness, could have found restoration, could he have been restored if he had turned to God in repentance? I actually do. And I'll tell you why. Because in Acts chapter 9, we see the transformation of Paul. In Acts chapter 9 verse 1, it says that Paul is uttering threats with every breath and finding joy and eagerness to kill the Lord's followers. 
Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But what do we see in Acts 9, 15? That this man who is eager to kill God's followers is the one who God would later call my chosen instrument to take my message to Gentiles and to kings and to the people of Israel. What we see here is that the biggest persecutor of the Christian faith became the boldest proclaimer of their gospel. And because of that hope, I believe there could have been hope for Judas if he had turned to the Lord in repentance. Judas wasn't the only one to experience a regrettable moment that night, though, was he? Because let's look in chapter 26, verse 31. It says, on the way, so now they've had their dinner, they're on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus tells them, tonight, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. You ever found yourself doing things that you swore you would never do? Right? Or maybe you find yourself doing things that you said that you would never do again, and you find yourself. Here Peter's like, Lord, I would never. Maybe the other guys would, but not me. Fast forward to verse 69. Jesus has been arrested, and he's been ushered away into the night to be tried and convicted by a court that would make a mockery of justice. And standing outside the proceedings, Peter's warming himself by the fire when he is approached by a young girl who recognizes him as one of them. She says, you're one of them. You're one of Jesus' followers, which he denies. And it says that he moves away towards the gate. And there he is, once again, he's called out. Aren't you one of his followers? His heart's beginning to pound. His, 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 his rabbi, his, the one who follows, has just been arrested. And so his heart is pounding and his fear is, is racing. He's like, I, I don't want to get lumped in. I don't know what's going to happen. And out of fear, he, he denies and, and, he, and he swears. He's like, you know, on, on my grandmother, I promise. I don't know him, right? He, he's making this oath. Like, I do not know The man, well, a third time, he's just having a hard time. You ever been trying to be inconspicuous? Just like when you want to be unseen, you know, and he's just kind of like, I just want to fade into the background. But a third time, he's called out and identified as a follower of Jesus and to save himself from scrutiny and, and from fear of what might happen. He disowns Jesus to the point of proclaiming, curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. Immediately, the scripture says the rooster crowed. And suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through his mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. See in this text, two men who had had a very similar experience. Very similar. They had a very similar calling. Right, Jesus had come follow me and they'd accepted that invitation. They had very similar experiences. They'd been to the same places. They'd been hearing the same message and teaching. They'd witnessed the same miracles as they'd been with Jesus. They had the same access to Jesus, the Son of God. And now each of them experienced failure. They each have betrayed Jesus. But in this moment, they interpret their reality very differently. 
And in this moment, they react differently as a result. I want to ask you this question. How do we overcome failure today? How do we overcome failure? Well, you might know the, the famous saying is that an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure, right? So the best way to overcome failure is to pre- prevent it in the first place. And, and I see in this text, the first thing to do is don't overestimate your strength. Peter declared, even if everyone else does, Lord, even if they're weaker in faith than I am, I would never do that. Don't overestimate your strength. Picture this conversation. Like, Everybody but me, Lord. Like, you must not even know me, Jesus, because I would never do that. And Jesus looks at him and goes, I know you perfectly. Like, that's the whole reason I am warning you, right? 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 12 says, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. No one is immune to temptation or to failure. You know, rarely does failure suddenly just spring on you, right? Rarely do you ever just fall into failure. You know, I always have people come to my office and they always say this kind of something along this line. I don't know how I ended up here. I don't know how I ended up in this place. And as we unpack their story, uh, failure usually is a, a slow and steady desensitization. Failure usually comes with a series of, of cons- uh, compromises and of letting down the guard. The scripture says, be careful. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The best way to overcome failure is to present, prevent it in the first place. Don't overestimate your strength. But if you do experience failure, it's important that you allow yourself, number two, is to grieve your failure. Grieve your failure says that these words flashed through Peter's mind and he went away weeping bitterly. You know, sometimes we want to minimize, we want to justify, we want to blame others, we want to downplay or explain away our failures, don't we? Sometimes we want to self-medicate, we want to numb in the middle, we don't want to feel that sense of guilt or shame, and uh, sometimes we just want to push through to feeling better and feeling uh, good about ourselves and our situation. Here's the thing, if you avoid the pain, you're going to experience more of the same pattern. We have to grieve our failure in order to grow through it. Hurt, brokenness, and sin, you know, when they're undealt with and suppressed. I often think if you've ever been in a pool playing with a beach ball, and and if you try to submerge that ball under the surface, what happens, right? If you submerge it, it's just kind of going to pop up somewhere else in the pool, right? You push it down, and it just kind of rolls away and pops up in other places. And when we don't deal with the things in our lives, they have a way of popping up in our physical health. That has a way of popping up in our relationships and in our spiritual lives and our actions and our attitudes. If you don't grieve your failures, you're going to be the same old you. You might look to a new job or a new relationship, even a new church, but how many know you're going to be the same you surrounded by new surroundings? But you'll be experiencing the same situations. So we need to grieve our failures and we need to unpack how we got to that place, what contributed to the breakdown. But it's equally important that we stay connected. It's important that we don't isolate and we don't insulate ourselves in this process. See, when you're in a crisis, you're not usually thinking straight, right? When you're in a crisis, you need help to gain perspective and clarity. Psalm 27 says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. 
Guess where Peter was in his darkest day of despair? Friday night, he, did, he betrays the Lord. Guess where it says he is on Sunday? He's with his life group. He's with the guys he's been doing life with. He, you would think that he would be hidden away somewhere on his own. Sunday morning, it says Peter's with the disciples. It says later that day, Jesus appeared to the disciples and all of them were eating lunch together when Jesus appeared to them. John 21 tells us that Peter's fishing with his friends when the Lord appeared to him again. He didn't isolate or insulate himself. He allowed himself to be with his friends. You find strength in the middle of crisis when you're in community. Galatians 6 says, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Stay connected. And the time to build a connection network isn't after the crisis strikes. It's before the crisis happens. Be in community. That's why we love Life Group. That's why we love the local church. We do life together. Stay connected. But here's a, another important thing. Don't overestimate your failure. I know in the moment it feels like this is the end of the world. This is the end of my life. How can I overcome this? Don't overestimate your failure. It might be bad, but it's never that bad. Let me tell you why. You know, we, we can't downplay our actions. We can't downplay our accountability. But here's what Scripture says, that there is a very real enemy of our soul. The Bible says that the enemy of our soul is Satan is real, and Satan's sole aim is to distract us and dissuade us from our worship of God. That's been his goal since the very beginning. And one of the things he wants to do is detract us and discourage us from pursuing the plans of God for our lives. And one of the ways he does that is to minimize sin on this side of it. How many know when you're on this side of sin, you think it's not that bad, right? It's not hurting anybody. No one's ever going to find out, right? On this side of sin, we minimize sin in our minds, and we're tempted to minimize it. But on this side of sin, how many know we maximize it? You're such a hypocrite. You're such a failure and a, and a betrayal. God would never have uh, time for you. Uh, you're forfeiting your future and all the plans and purposes God has for you, right? We minimize sin on this side, and then we maximize it. On that side of it, Judas was tempted to believe that his failure forfeit his future. But here's the thing. I love this because as we look at Peter's failure, Luke captures in some more details some of the, they're all writing about this story, but Luke captures a few details that the other gospel writers uh, leave out. In Luke 22, Verse 31, we heard this passage today in Matthew's account where it says, um, well, I, uh, verse, well, let's back up. I, I missed a point here. See, Simon, Jesus told Simon, he says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your, bro your brothers. Jesus, in that moment, he already knew that Peter was going to deny him. But he also knew that Peter would return to him in repentance. So what does it say here? Is Jesus put off by his failure? Is Jesus disgusted by him? And it says here, no, it says he's not shocked. I want you to know that when we fail, God's not shocked. He's not caught off guard. 
He knows how fickle the human heart is. It says here, though, that Jesus prays for you. Hebrews 7.25 says that we have a high priest who lives to make intercession on our behalf. God is constantly praying for us to be strengthened and encouraged in our faith. It says that Jesus believes in you. I know that you can make it through this. And when you do, when you come back to me, he says, I want to turn your failures into fuel. He says, you're going to go and encourage the other brothers. Peter, your life's not over. Your ministry's not over just because you failed. This is going to fuel you and your ministry to the others. And we see that Jesus comes back to Peter and he says, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. He says, you're going to be the voice on Pentecost Sunday who's going to see 3,000 people added to the kingdom of God. He says, Peter, you're going to be the author of two books of my New Testament. You're not written out of the story. You are written in. See, our culture, we talk about the culture we live in wanting to cancel people who fail. Right? Cancel people who don't live up to expectation, who experience failure. But Jesus invites all people to follow him. He invites all people to follow him. Let's fast forward just a moment in the story. Jesus is crucified in the most excruciating way. On Friday night, his body is taken from the cross and is buried in the tomb. A huge stone is rolled in front of the tomb and the Roman guard is posted to watch over it just to make sure there's no funny business, no illegitimate claims of miracles or anything like that. They post this guard there. And yet Sunday morning, as Jesus' friends visit the tomb to mourn their friend, they discover that the stone has been rolled away. And in its place, there's an angel waiting to greet them. Mark 16, 7 captures it like this. The angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. But he isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where he, his, they laid his body. And look at what the angel says next. He says, now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. Imagine in this moment how Peter would have felt uh, to get this news not only for all the disciples, but specifically for him too. See, Jesus didn't crop Peter out of the picture. Jesus didn't edit him or delete him from the photo. He didn't cancel him. It says instead that he says, I've gone ahead of you. Come and follow me. I've gone ahead of you. Would you come and follow me? Regardless of your past, God invites you to walk with him now. Isn't that amazing, church? No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus offers you this invitation to come and follow me. Would you just get a little excited about that this morning? How many know that God didn't crop you or edit you or delete you? How many can be grateful for that today? Jesus offers this invitation for you and for me to follow him. If you're here today and you're joining us online, you haven't yet accepted that invitation. Today would be the perfect day to do that. We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. Communion is just a celebration of what Christ has done for us. And as we do it, it would be an amazing time for you to be able to do that with a fresh receptivity right now. You might be feeling this, this stirring in your heart. I think that God's calling me to follow him. 
Maybe you made that decision years ago, but you haven't really followed him closely. Maybe you've abandoned him along the way. Today is a great day. Say, Jesus, I will follow you. How do we do that? We say, we repent of our failures. We turn like Peter again to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've been leading my own life. I've been following my own paths. I repent. That's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not just the actions that we do. Sin is the attitude of autonomy from God. God, I'm going to do life my way. And out of that comes all the action we call sin. But today we say, Jesus, I'm going to do life your way. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow your plans and purposes going to let you lead. And as we let God lead our lives, he heals our hurts. He heals our hurts. He makes us whole. He fills us with the peace, the assurance that he's in control. Sin separates us from God, but when we come back to Jesus and he offers us an invitation, even in the midst of our failure, he says, come and follow me. This morning, I don't know where you're at, but would you just take a moment of reflection as we do, we're going to celebrate communion in just a second. The wonderful thing about the gospel message is this. And as we come to the table, we all come to the table in the same position. As we come to this Lord's Supper, none of us are better than others. I love the story that says that all the disciples betrayed Jesus that night. We look at Judas and we say, well, he was the worst of them all. Or we look at Peter, we say, well, his was elevated more. They all betrayed Jesus. None of them were found in Jesus' darkest hour. And that's what the gospel message is, that each and every one of us, there is none righteous, no, no one perfect, not one. It's because of that very reason Jesus gave his life on the cross. And so we can't let sin, we can't let shame, we can't let our failure separate us from God because that's that very thing. But for that very purpose... Jesus came and died for us. Would you take that away for today? And on the same night, as the disciples were at the table, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Broken for you that you could be restored to relationship with God. Broken that you could be healed of your sin, that you could be made whole, that you could find forgiveness so that you can actually follow me. Would you take that with me today? Jesus took the cup. He said, this symbolizes my blood spilled in a covenant. as a blood covenant. as a covenant between God and humanity that everyone who would believe in him, everyone who would accept his invitation uh, would be sealed underneath that covenant that would receive the forgiveness of their sins. But also with that, the hope. The hope for today and the hope for eternity. I love it. It says, as often as you drink this cup, you are declaring the Lord's death until he comes again. Before he went to the cross, Jesus told his followers, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. I want you to come and meet me there. At that tomb, the angel said to Peter, Peter, in your failure, remember God's told, Jesus told you, I've gone to Galilee. Come and meet me there. If you take this cup today, we're reminded Jesus said, my blood spilled for you, but I'm going to eternity. Follow me and meet me there. Isn't that a beautiful thing this morning? Would you take that cup with me today? Hallelujah.
praise your name, Jesus. All over this place, would you stand with me today as we worship our Savior one last time. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that on this Resurrection Sunday, God, not only did you beat death, Lord, not only did you beat sin, God, but you overcame our brokenness and our failures. God, that you've overcome all of the brokenness in our lives so that we could be healed and made whole and restored to complete relationship with you. Lord, that you've gone ahead of us and you say to us today, follow me. Follow me. Stop leading your own life. Stop hiding in sin and shame. Stop hiding in fear. Follow me. Step into the light, and you will have the light that leads to life. God, we want to pursue you today. We want to pursue you. We worship you and praise you. In Jesus' name.